honestly, it started with, I love my dad. I don't want this to happen again. Why did this happen? I, I want to protect my father. This was just, I got to go into medicine. I've got to figure this out. I must protect him from this ever happening again. Then it became, hmm, <laughs> how about me? I may have this exact thing. I'm learning there's some genetics to this. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. Welcome to In the Doctor's Chair, where today I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with Dr. Beth Fratis, Assistant Clinical Professor at Harvard Medical School, award-winning teacher as well as Director of Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness at Massachusetts General Hospital and Wellness Coach. We talk together about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine and how lifestyle medicine is not a quick fix, but a journey that lasts a lifetime. Beth believes that to be truly well, we should always be working towards a healthy body, peaceful mind and joyful heart. With this growth mindset, life becomes a journey where every misstep is an opportunity to learn and to grow. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. So I'm really delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair by Beth Frates, who is a real pioneer in the area of lifestyle as medicine. And, you know, it's a great privilege for me to speak to Beth, because for me, she's one of those human beings who really is an active participant in her own well-being. And she really allows her own actions to speak more loudly than her words. Beth, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Mark, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Beth, can I start off by asking you about lifestyle as medicine, where your interest and passion for lifestyle medicine came from? This goes way back, way, way back with an experience that I did have as a child and it impacts me today. And this is an experience that happened oh, oh, over 30 years ago where I was a freshman in college going to major in economics, just like my dear old dad, whom I adored and revered. His dad had started a company in New York, and I, it was always the plan that I would take that company over. So this very day, one day in September, I went to get my first books for college, and I was, had my economics books. So I went out of the bookstore, and there was a payphone, the days of the payphone, and I called back home to, to explain how excited I was about being in college and with my economics books, and I reached my mom. And she said something that startled me and something I knew, but I didn't hear out loud like this. And she said, oh, Beth, your father loves you very much. And I thought, of course he does. I know this. I, I, I feel his love. I love him. Everything's good. 
And uh, that was the indicator that something major had happened. And then she went on to explain that dad was in the hospital, in a hospital bed, unable to move his left side because he had suffered a heart attack and then a subsequent stroke. As it turns out, he had atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and was riddled with disease at the age of 52, and no one knew. So this particular event is the one that led me into medicine. I was fascinated with how this happened, why this happened, how we can prevent it from happening again, and how the body can recover. And I, I'm happy to tell you that he lived another 27 fabulous years with these conditions. It, how does this relate to lifestyle? Well, the lifestyle he had prior to the heart attack and stroke was one that many people are living right now. And I'll share that with you. And the one he learned to live and enjoyed, fully enjoyed and thrived with is the one that I strive to follow and help and empower others to follow. I myself did the same changes that he did. I was 18 though uh, at that time. So before the heart attack and stroke, this may be familiar to you and your listeners, maybe not, but dad was a New York City businessman, walked fast, talked fast, ate fast, ate and walked fast, <laughs> multitasked. And he was always on the go, 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 go. And he took over his dad's business. So his life was about the clients. Life was about work. And he worked, oh, 6 a.m. to pretty much midnight uh, every day and had a lot of stress. And how did he manage that stress? Eating candies. His diet consisted of fast food. So that's McDonald's right around the corner, the pretzels, the hot dogs that were on the corners of New York City, and cooks, cookies, cakes, anything really super sweet. He loved the sweets and, and would eat them throughout the day, really at night. He would even, his sleep was so disturbed. I know this because my bedroom was between his room and the kitchen, and he would go down in the middle of the night, not knowing he would wake me up at 3 a.m. To, to pull out the cookies and milk and whatever it was he was consuming the processed foods he would consume in the middle of the night. And I guess a little yelling might, it might've been a way to, to, manage, to manage stress. He was not exercising at all. He was overweight, overweight, overworked, overstressed. And when I think about his relationships, he had brothers, he was married to my mom. But the thing is, Mark, and I loved him. I would say we had a good relationship, but he wasn't really present. It was never, he would be home, but you knew his mind was somewhere else. It was very rare to catch him really in a moment with you, really with you. I would tell him things and often I would feel like it's not really listening. And then in terms of our sixth pillar, I talked about exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress, social connection. And the last one is, is substance use. He did not smoke and did not drink. Uh, so uh, that was his one healthy pillar, one out of six. Otherwise, he was not following any guidelines in the other five pillars until he had the heart attack and stroke. And kudos to him for finding 
intensive lifestyle medicine programs in the US back in the late 80s. So that was Pritikin. There were Pritikin programs and he traveled with mom and he stayed for 10 days at a Pritikin program and learned all about diet, changing his diet. He made a complete change in what he consumed and what he put into his mouth for nutrition. He had vegetables suddenly for the first time. Oh, he had French fries. We can't call those vegetables. That was the closest thing that came to vegetables prior to this. And he ate whole grains. He, he, he actually stayed completely away from the cakes, the cookies. Uh, that was not in the house anymore. He, he enjoyed double stuff Oreos. I'll, I'll admit that. And <laughs> so did I. But uh, after this, those were not in the house. They just, they weren't part of the process at all. And berries and apples and oranges and bananas became the, the delicacy, the, the delicious desserts that we would enjoy. And salads appeared. We never had salads. Salads appeared. So his whole plate and way of eating changed. Did not go to McDonald's or any fast food places after that. Heart attack and stroke. And he started exercising a half hour, five days a week on his exercise bike. He had one where you could use your arms and your legs and his sleep was far better. Again, I can tell you, I know that. <laughs> and in terms of work, he wasn't living to work anymore. That's literally, he was living to work. And instead he was doing some work and enjoying it. It was more part-time, but he was also enjoying his family, his friends, and he became far more mindful. You could have conversations with him, extended conversations where he was fully focused on you and his relationships blossomed. I, I, I did see him kiss my mom for the very first time after this. I I'd never seen him kiss mom before. And I know that that relationship really grew after the stroke. And then the stress resiliency, he would do walks. He, of course he did his biking, but he would walk also. Part of his, his program was going out and walking in the neighborhood and walking on the track. Interestingly, at that time, it was recommended, you may remember, it was the 80s, American Heart Association and others in cardiology, and his own cardiologist recommended that he drink a glass of wine a night. He was one that followed the rules, so he did start a glass of wine a night. So that's interesting because, as we all know, the, the current recommendations are if you don't drink, don't start. So that would have been different if it had happened now. I mean, Beth, an absolutely fascinating story of, you know, recovery and marked change from before to after. That didn't just happen. That must have taken great courage uh, for your dad to make those changes, because I know as a doctor, making change isn't easy. What do you think inspired him to make the change? Yes, change is tough. And when you suffer a health setback like that, there's a process one goes through denial, uh, anger. Mm -hmm. And he went through all these different stages with his health setback, with his disease of cardiovascular disease that he had. I mentioned all the, the diagnoses that he came out of this with, and he hid them for a long time, long time. I hard for me to say his recovery was really six months to a year. He was quiet and, and working on that recovery wasn't sharing with friends, anything. And it took him a long time to come to this new normal for himself. 
he did recover function. I didn't mention this. He recovered full function so that if you met him a year later, you would not know he had a heart attack and stroke unless you handed him a dime in his left hand. Then he would have trouble manipulating it, holding it. Uh, otherwise, you, you would not know. And it was really after that year when he realized he would have a second chance at this that he started to investigate options for prevention. And the fear of this happening again was real to him. There are different personalities, Mark, right? And, and you can't, one can't generalize here. I can tell you that my father was someone that was greedy and determined and an intellectual. So when he learned from Pritikin and Whitaker, he went to two programs. He didn't just go to one. He went to one. And then I think it was about six months later, he went to another. When he learned that he had some control, and I think wanting some control is so uh, common and important for people after such a, a devastating turn in their life. So when he learned that he could have some control over this, in fact, his cardiologist back in the day, he had had a calf, which showed that he had atherosclerosis, lesions in his coronary arteries. Uh, he had had that. Then he went on these diets that I mentioned and he followed these new protocols. And back in the day, you, you could do a calf and check. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how that happened, but he, he had a second calf to check. And in fact, there was regression in his lesions. And he saw those with his own two eyes with his cardiologist in New York City. And that was very powerful and very motivating. So he continued on this path because he wanted to enjoy his grandkids. My brother was older than I am. And my brother had, grand, had children shortly after this event. So he had three little, cute, adorable girls that he wanted to take care of with my mom and, and, and have Camp Maymay and Papa so my brother and, and his wife could enjoy some time away. And he had real motivators for himself. He, I don't want to say that he missed my childhood and my brother's childhood. I, I don't know, right, that but he was not involved day to day and as much as he was with his three granddaughters. He really got very involved, reading stories, playing on, on the floor, going to the parks. These are things I have no memory of for myself with my own dad. So he got this second chance with family life and he took it. So I believe that his personality being one that is determined and perseverant. And then the intellectual will show me the data. And back then it was his own data. It wasn't necessarily the New England Journal article, but it was his own progress. Okay, this is working. And Dean Ornish had at that time published literature that was shared uh, by his own cardiologist with him. So he understood that there were studies that showed this would work if he could change his diet his stress response and, and exercise. So that helped him. And then I will say that motivator of the, of the young kids and then my mom. So my mom, the factor of my mom is strong. And I understand that now more so than, than ever in that she was a teacher at elementary school before getting married. And then when she had us, she stopped working, but her personality is very coach-like, which I understand now since training and coaching in 2008 and really following behavior change. 
her personality is one where she went with them, of course, to Pritikin and Whitaker. She changed her diet in the house, right? She would go out with her friends, by the way, and eat and, and, and have, have lots of cookies and cakes and, and fun things with them. But that's a different story. Uh, but in the house, she was very strict and rigid and followed what, what dad needed it to be healthy and wanted. Yes. She was a partner in this. She was almost like a coach in this. She would keep him accountable. She would work with him. She would cook. She was the cook. So she would cook the way Pritikin and Whitaker suggested. And she would help him with the stress response and lowering stress. So I think there are many factors that allowed him to be successful in his change. Well, I think it's a fascinating story, Beth. And I'm just reflecting in real time about your dad. Firstly, he he had tremendous courage uh, to change because change is never easy. The science about the benefits of lifestyle changes weren't present then the way they are now. So he didn't have easy access to the knowledge, but he went and found out where he could get the help and support he had great support around him, particularly with, with your mammy, um, who, as you said, was a really, really smart coach in her own way. And he had grit in abundance. He was determined and he was resilient and he was able to keep going. Uh, so I really admire your dad. And, you know, I've seen this story many times over the years in my own practice with people who have suffered a significant health adversity, a health challenge, and have had the courage to make positive changes. And I'm a great believer in that power of possibility that it never stops starting. It's never too late. The best day to start to change your life is today. I love that, Mark. Yeah. As I say, you know, the past for all of us, Beth, is gone. We can learn from it. We can grow from it. But ultimately, it's done and dusted. It's R&D. But we can change tomorrow by what we do today. And it's all about starting, isn't it? Just doing something to align you more closely with that healthier version of you. I love that. Yes, I am 100% in agreement with you. And clearly your dad's journey, you know, adversity and, and recovery, tremendous recovery in terms of his quality of life and lived experience was a huge why for you, Beth, in terms of committing your life to not just to medicine and healthcare, but to lifestyle medicine and disease prevention. Yes, exactly. Think about it every once in a while. And I, if my dad did not have that heart attack and stroke, I, I could be in New York city right now, the president of a financial advising company that my grandfather started and be the third generation to be leading that. Cause that really for 18 years was my major goal and was my purpose in life to take that over and make that a third generation success. I was the youngest of all the, the pegs. That's my maiden name. Uh, I was the, the baby cousin. And, and I was the one that was like dad, gritty, perseverant, hardworking, going to get it done, going to get the job done. And, and my cousins were happy to say, oh, Beth will be the one to, to take over the, the company. And I do think had it not been for his heart attack and stroke, I I, I might well have a very different life, uh, potentially a different lifestyle as well. I'm not sure because there's a part of me, Mark, that always understood exercise is medicine. And I will share with you that I discovered this 
probably at the age of 14. I, w- I was very much interested in sports. I, I loved soccer. I, I loved softball, basketball in elementary school and, and middle school. But it wasn't until my uncle, my Greek uncle, had all of us kids in Nantucket. There, there were my cousins and my brother and I. There were, there were seven of us children living in the house with him and my aunt. And it was mayhem. <laughs> and so he would, <laughs> he would take us to the track. He was a judge, the judge of the island in, uh, of Nantucket. And a very smart man. He would take us out. Went, when things just got completely crazy, he would take us to the track. And he would say, you all have to run. <laughs> now, I was a good little, good little doobie. So I, I just, I, did, I didn't like trouble. So run? Okay, I'll run. So I <laughs> And I ran. Now, some of my cousins were, you know, goofing around. They were older boys and they were still causing trouble. Not me. I was running. <laughs> I just wanted peace. And uh, it was then that I that I got, probably got my first high. Only I, I've only experienced this kind of high, to be honest. I, I've never experimented because at 14, I got this real endorphin, endorphin rush from running. And not only that, I got this encouragement. My uncle said to me, wow, you have stride. You are a runner. You, you should do track. You should do cross country. He signed me up at age 14 for a 12 mile, a 12 mile race around the island of Nantucket. Wow. Uh, so I did this. I got, I got lost. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. I won my age group. Why? Nobody else was in my age group. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> the whole point of the story is I learned that when I run, I feel good. It, it's, it was, a, for me, a real endorphin rush. So I have used that. This was before dad's heart attack and stroke. I would run on the weekends. I would, I would run as a form of stress relief. I wasn't saying to myself, this is stress relief. I'll go run. I was saying, mom, dad, I'm going to go take a run now. And it was just because I wanted to go. And, and it was an internal motivator, it, meaning it was something that happened inside me that was so great that I wanted to do it again and again and again. And it's, it's that endorphin rush. So that fact that exercise increases serotonin, increases dopamine, increases norepinephrine, increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, all these things we now know because it's 2021 and it's not 1980. <laughs> so in the 30 years, it's been fascinating to learn the science behind what we are, ex- what some of us, not everyone gets this in- endorphin rush or, or runner's high, I understand it. So some of us are experiencing when we participate in athletic activities, physical activity, movement. So I would say that that event itself, my heart, the heart attack and stroke of my dad changed my career, my trajectory there. I think Personally, I would still be running. And when I learned what was healthy for my body about nutrition wise, I'm, I'm thinking that I would follow that because for some reason, once I won that race, I, it's interesting. We, we label ourselves, right? I labeled myself an athlete. I labeled myself a runner. So I labeled myself you know, that, that I, that I, I had a body and it was a temple. I didn't drink. 
uh, because I didn't want to, uh, it didn't do any drugs. I didn't want to m- mix up this temple. Now I didn't know that the food I was putting in steak, French fries, the things that my you know hamburger the th- was on my plate. I didn't know at that time that that was unhealthy for me. So I didn't realize I was doing damage at that time. I think that I might've still followed a healthy lifestyle because I deemed myself or my uncle helped me to label myself as, as, as an athlete. I might've followed the healthy way, but it wouldn't have been my prime purpose and mission in life to help others avoid a heart attack and stroke. That's literally how it started. I wrote a book, How to Prevent a Second Stroke and Recover Your Health. That, that was all about, honestly, it started with, I love my dad. I don't want this to happen again. Why did this happen? I, I want to protect my father. This was just, I got to go into medicine. I've got to figure this out. I must protect him from this ever happening again. Then it became Hmm. <laughs> How about me? I may have this exact thing. I'm learning there's some genetics to this. I, I may well follow the same path. So I better protect myself. And then it became protect all stroke survivors from having this happen again and then prevent it from happening to anyone's stroke. And then it was, wait a minute, the things that I studied about nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress, resiliency, this can help more than preventing stroke. It can help to prevent heart attack, diabetes, now Alzheimer's. I mean, so this is how the personal journey became one in in lifestyle medicine. Absolutely fascinating and inspiring. And it's so interesting, Beth, that you really got that connection between exercise and feeling good at such a young age, because, you know, sometimes people associate changes with suffering and pain and denial. Whereas if you can really connect with the idea of positive changes that you're actually moving towards, not just a healthier version of you, but moving towards feeling better, getting up and moving and appreciating the, as you said, all of those neurochemicals, the biochemical cocktail of brilliance, as I say, that really allows you to be more creative and feel more energized, all those lovely endorphins. Um, it's, It's such a better way to be in the world, isn't it, Beth? Yes, absolutely. And I do think... This is why I am adamant that we make lifestyle medicine mainstream such that we put it into middle school. It's interesting. I'm having this conversation with you because it's, it's, it's helping me also understand myself in a way where I, you may know just recently last year, we put together the lifestyle medicine uh, handbook for teens. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Well, I started teaching this to, well, interestingly, 14, 13 and 14 year olds locally here in the Boston area, thinking if I could get them to feel just like you just said, to to feel the power of these pillars, exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress, resiliency, social connection. If I could get them to feel that early on and understand the power of that, then when they get to high school and college, they'll be able to use these pillars, deep breathing walks, exercise to get through tough and challenging times. Mm. And I do believe that if we can put this material into mainstream education, even in elementary school, but I, I'm targeting middle school right now, but even elementary school would be helpful. Of course, we're trying to get it into medical schools and, that, and we're making a great progress there. But I believe that when you feel it, just like you just you expressed, and you can actually 
feel that you're more creative after the run or that you study more productively when you're in middle school, after you take a run or a walk, you actually can be more productive. I think this is powerful and very important social connection, understanding how to cultivate high quality connections in your life early on. And this is a topic we did all six pillars with the middle schoolers. And you know, when we got to social connection and talking about, well, if you weren't invited to the sleepover and you're seeing pictures of everyone at the sleepover, how do you respond? How do you move forward? What do you tell yourself? Because by the way, all the kids in the room had been in a, some kind of similar situation. Either they were the ones that did the inviting and excluding or they were excluded. And, and learning how to get along with everyone, respect everyone and collaborate is key in this world, isn't it? It's, it's key. And I know you talk about positivity a lot and it's just so important. And I think my Greek grandma Rose, she came here when she was 18 from, from Basara. It's again, one of those experiences of where I felt it. I really, I understood it because just like the run and the endorphins, when my Greek grandma Rose was in my presence or in anyone's presence, she had this ability to make you feel stronger, make you feel empowered just by the words she chose to use, the questions that she asked, and the energy she exuded. She was a, a person who didn't know the literature around gratitude. This is the 70s, 80s. She didn't know any of that literature, but, but she used gratitude. And I, I have these visions of her in her home in, in Winthrop here in the Boston area, looking out the window and saying, Elizabeth, the sun, it is shining. It's a great day. And just the big cheeks, the huge smile, the, the, the glowing in herself about the gratitude for, for, for the sun. Like you said, for a new day, it's a new day. It's a new chance. And, and that's just the way she was. And I had this role model of that, that I, now I know the literature, right? Marty Seligman, Dr. Emmons, they've done a great deal of literature showing if you can think of three things for which you're grateful, you can do this for four weeks, you can in fact change your mood, you can, you can decrease anxiety. So now we, we have literature and, and studies that, that, that show us these things, but when we experience them for ourselves. I think you're absolutely right, Beth. There's nothing like having good influencers, good role models, in your own life and to actually experience the benefits of positive health and lifestyle medicine practices can make can make such a difference just for our listeners beth you know and this is a great conversation how do you stay healthy yourself just to give them some ideas about how your own actions celebrate lifestyle as medicine well i i love the outdoors I love being outside. And you know, now there's actually literature that recommends we get outside in nature for 120 minutes each week. So I love the outdoors. I love running, as I mentioned to you. And I am an outdoor runner. I have tried the treadmill and sometimes in Boston, I, I need to use that treadmill because of snow and weather conditions. But I love the outdoors. I love nature. And and so that also brought me to not just running, but other activities outside. 
So trying new things for me is critical. I, I, I run, but it, you know, at my age, you need to do other things too. I, I took up yoga probably 12, 15 years ago, and I'm always adding something new. We moved to a home on a lake, started paddle boarding. Then I started doing paddleboard yoga. It's movement is very important for me and my, my mindset and my mood and trying different things, new things in that arena is critical. And I do follow a whole food plant predominant way of eating. I, I eat primarily plants and I love it. I, 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 it, it's delicious. It, absolutely. And that that's what I do. I have been one to honor sleep. Uh, you could ask grandma Rose. She's not here anymore. Obviously, but I was that little kid that said time for a nap. <laughs> I've got to go take my nap now. <laughs> I, 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 in college went to bed at 10 or 11. I love my sleep. Uh, I sleep seven, eight hours. I am a morning person. So I may go to sleep at 10 and I'm, I'm, you know, I could be up at, up at six, up at five, five 30. I'm just a morning person, but I, I definitely, I, I honor my, I honor what I'm feeling. If I'm feeling very fatigued around nine, I'll excuse myself and, and head to bed <laughs> and just, and get my rest. So I really do the three main pillars of exercise, nutrition, and sleep I, I have been working on for, for many years. And then social connection. That's one mark where when I was in medical school and college and doing a lot of work, I would put, put that on the back burner. So that's one I've been, I've been working on to, to do better, connect with my girlfriends from high school and college my immediate relationship with my husband, whom I met in college, that I, 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 we're living together and we're working together and that we're keeping strong. And then with my children, prioritizing that, my 21-year-old, my 19-year-old sons. But it, I, I am working on enjoying other friendships um, and, and, and creating, creating these close bonds and rekindling that. I think you're you're an inspiration through your through your own actions, but I think it's also reassuring for people to hear that Beth isn't perfect, because not none of us are. And uh, it's interesting as well that you you have identified you know your social connections as as something that you want to work on and and build and grow and develop and foster further in the years ahead. And I think you know we all have gaps and. You know, when you know better, you can do better. And to know yourself well enough to accept the reality of where you are and really to understand that things can improve through small changes. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other thing is we have successes, we have struggles, we have surprises. And I think learning from the surprises and the struggles is important. So I told you my stress reduction was generally the running. When my dad passed away and, and my mom was left, we realized she had dementia and I took care of her with my family here for years. And, and my stress resiliency techniques were, I needed more, I needed something else. And it wasn't until I guess 2014 that I took seriously mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction, meditation, and I really embraced that. And it helped me to be the daughter 
that I know I, I am and, and all the patient person that I needed to be um, during the, that, that tough time and that struggle. But opening up to say, I need some more stress resiliency techniques, the running and the yoga are good, but I need something else that can do it for me right in that moment, right after she's, you know, it's nine o'clock, she's sundowning mom and uh, she's asking the same thing or she's agitated or whatever. I need to be able to, I can't go for a run. <laughs> in other words, I need to be able to breathe, really breathe through that. So instead of being angry about what, what the situation was, it was more of a growth mindset. Okay, so here's an opportunity for me. I've, I've thought about meditation and, and I've thought about mindful walks, mindful retreats, silent retreats. I've thought about these things for years. Guess what? Now's my time to jump into it. And um, I did that and it was really, really life-changing. Uh, of course, it helped with my mom, but it also helped in general in my own life in ways I couldn't have imagined. Just being able to slow myself down and being able to use the breath in the moment. I mean, I'm a great admirer of the work Herbert Benson has done in, in Harvard, John Kabat-Zinn, and you know, bringing that sense of mindful presence into your everyday life. I mean, I have a little pause technique. I teach patients each day now at work. Uh, I get the double benefit of, of experiencing it as well. But, but you're right, Beth, when you do embrace the idea of mindfulness, even in a very simple way, like just pausing and becoming more mindful of your breath, it does expand and extend into other areas of your life. As you said, you become generally more mindful in your choices. Exactly. That leads me into one other area I want to emphasize, which is self-care. Because I could be, maybe you could be, certainly my mom was, a person that took care of everyone else and not worry about the self. And when I look back, I, we can always, you know, Monday morning quarterback, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, et cetera. Mom was so uh, worried about, involved in dad's care and what could dad do and how to take care of dad that honestly, she neglected herself. And we found she had high blood pressure. My son, in his science experiment, he was looking at how music affected blood pressure in middle school and decided to take mom, his grandmother's blood pressure, play. He was playing hard rock like Led Zeppelin, and then he'd play Mozart. And <laughs> he'd see how the blood pressure went. Well, it was a great experiment, but, 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 but the point is, her blood pressure was 190. What, 190 over... 90. I, I, I took it again and again. He took it. And I thought, oh, you don't know how to take blood pressure. So I took it. Who knows how long she was riding high like that. And I mentioned she she would eat whatever she wanted when she was out with her friends. At home, she would do fine. Um, she, she, she never got her heart rate up. She'd take some walks with dad, but she didn't like movement. She didn't really sweat. She didn't like to sweat. And the thing is, she was little. My grandmother was little. She was little. She was just little. So she could eat and do all, all these things and remain little. A lot of people are so focused on how big or small they are. They, they, they manage their intake based on that. Well, there's a lot more to it than how big or small you are. And so I think that what happened, she's now passed away. Uh, she died right before COVID really struck in, in, 20, in 2020. It was January at any rate. 
it was a great reminder for me that you need to, you, you, yes, taking care of others in your life and taking care of patients, it's, it's very important. But if you're not looking at your own lifestyle and if you're not thinking about how the six pillars are working in your world, you, you can't necessarily be as productive, as helpful as you may be for as long as you may be. So that's something I think I'm trying to work on even more with people that I coach and work with in lifestyle is we really want to take time to think about ourselves and not, not just the patients and the kids and the parents, right? Because a lot of us are in that sandwich generation, right? You're taking care of your kids, taking care of your parents, your patients, or your whatever that may be. And, and you just kind of getting by with yourself and that that's not going to work in the long term. You're dead right. I mean, I think I always say, you know, self-care is, is a gift to you and everyone that matters in your life. And everything starts with taking good care of yourself. And I see so many people who really neglect themselves classically, as you said, somebody in that sandwich situation, um, often mothers um, busy c- caring for everyone else and ignore their, their own health. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. It can be, it really can be a win-win. It doesn't have to be a win-lose. And it really is important to value yourself because the better care you take of yourself, the better everybody around you is going to benefit from that. So I'm just going to recap on these six pillars, Beth, for our listeners. We're talking about nutrition and exercise and sleep and stress resiliency and social connection, and obviously avoiding the big elephants in the room like smoking and uh, moderating your alcohol consumption that they're, they're the six pillars really. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And it's not just one. Oh, if I focus on exercise, just exercise. I, I do. I do love it. As you know, I've talked about a lot in this time we've shared, but sleep, social connection, I mentioned other ways to bring down stress. All this is important. It's really a combination of these six pillars I have come to really respect and use specifically with patients and with myself, the combination of these and really focusing on, on, on all of them. And they are all interrelated. I mean, when you exercise, you have less cravings for sugar. When you sleep well, your mood is improved and you can have conversations that are maybe difficult that don't end up in an amygdala flare and, and in anger if, if you're sleeping and you're able to come up to your conversation with some sense of inner peace and calm. So I, I, I just want to emphasize that it's a combination and connection of all the pillars that are so important for us and using them for ourselves, for the people in our, in our lives is, is critical. And I think you started with modeling behavior and I'll just share with you, guess who goes off for runs when he's feeling a little stressed? My son, right? So he saw mom going out running and he then, you know, we're modeling this. So he, he gets an endorphin rush (laughs) uh, as well. And so by taking care of myself, and taking that time to go out and exercise. And sometimes I would say, wow, I'm feeling so stressed about work and things. I'm going to go for the run. I'll be back in half hour. 
you know, they were, they were teenagers they're fine at home. Uh, but, but just modeling that I was taking time for myself. That's true. And I didn't spend a half hour with him. That's true. But I believe I gave him the gift of, well, so when he's feeling stressed, oh, okay. Well, I know I've seen mom go for a run and come back feeling and acting very, very happy and good. So maybe I can try that. So self-care can also be a, a modeling for those in your life. I mean, as I say, you know, do as I do, not just as I say, and people are very interested in what you actually do. And if, you know, if your actions join up with your, with your words and your language, that has great power because, you know, it shows you believe what you're talking about. Beth, can I ask you for our listeners, what would be three take-homes for a resilient mindset that you'd like to share? I love that question. So I would say three take-homes. So I would say use a growth mindset. Any mishap is an opportunity to learn and grow. So a mishap of, well, having a heart attack and stroke and being paralyzed. What are we going to learn from that? How are we going to grow from that? Um, I would say number one, when, when there's a setback, a struggle, a surprise, how can we learn and grow from this growth mindset? I will bring back uh, gratitude. Mm-hmm. And realizing that each day is a new opportunity, but the power of gratitude, being grateful for that day, that new opportunity, being grateful for the loved ones in your life, being grateful for work that you enjoy, being grateful for the sun shining, being grateful for a good book, being grateful allows us to bring our minds to a place where we can be creative and productive and loving and kind. And then I would say lastly, so growth mindset, gratitude, and let's bring in being able to be fully present and mindful. If we're fully present in the moment, we can see the beauty that is in front of us. We can appreciate the struggle that may be here and now and how we can move and reach higher ground when we're fully present and mindful in the moment. So for resilience, I think a growth mindset, gratitude and learning how to be in the moment. And by the way, even when the moment is a tough moment, is a, is a, is a, a really difficult moment, learning how to be in that moment, not run away from it, not fight it, but how to be in that moment and experience the range of emotions of that moment may be presenting to you is important for us to have a resilient mindset. Fantastic. Well, I'm very grateful for our conversation today, Beth. And so finally, can I ask you, what's the meaning of life? I think that's such a fascinating question. What is the meaning of life? So to answer that, I'd have to say for me. Absolutely. Others are going to have a different answer. And it's, it's a good question to think about. So for me, the meaning of life is finding the beauty that is around you in the environment in which you live, in the people with which you, sp- you share space and time, and your own beauty inside yourself finding that beauty, appreciating that beauty, and then building upon that beauty 
so that the world will be a better place. So this beauty intensifies and continues with every individual that's here, with every being that's here. Well, that is beautiful, Beth. Uh, keep leading, keep inspiring in the field of lifestyle medicine. Keep building bridges to a better, healthier future for so many people. Beth, it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com. 